Thank you, Pastor. It's always a great honor to be back at Faustoria and uh, come up here to give you an update. I always get nervous coming back to Faustoria because all of you saw me growing up as a little immature teen running around causing trouble. And then I realized that half of you were teenagers running around with me causing trouble. And the other half of you are the parents of those teenagers who were running around. So we're all good. All right? So we're, we're glad to be back. I want to thank those who came out to help us with the container. And we got that loaded yesterday morning. And uh, you know who you are. You're around limping right now. And your muscles are probably all sore. But we got a 40-foot container loaded in just a couple hours. It got everything packed in. And I uh, got that shipped off, and we're excited about our next stage. It's each time we go back for another term, and we do shorter terms, shorter furloughs. We did the one-year furlough once, and it's just, it's a long time to be away from the ministry. And so we prefer shorter furloughs, coming back, updating the churches. And of course, I'll share a little bit about uh, the recruitment project that we have and our training project. But uh, God is at work in Senegal. We are planning on expanding. Right before we came back, many of you who had come out on the trip and know, obviously, about our ministry, about three years ago, um, I would, yeah, I'd say about three, three and a half years ago, Malik Job uh, joined our ministry, and he was an answer to prayer. I had been praying that somebody from his family, they were saved in the ministry there back in the 90s when Ron Bragg and uh, J.B. Godfrey and Swante Linguist, when they were there, and uh, one reason or another, they ended up going to a, most of his boys had spread out different parts of Senegal, all of them serving the Lord. And uh, his mom hadn't got, his mom took about 15 years. She was very bitter and angry about her husband getting saved. But all the kids got saved. They were baptized right on the property where we built our building. And so I began praying. And for one reason or another, they were going to another church in the area. And so I started praying that God would send either the dad back to work with us or one of his boys. And I didn't feel it would be right to approach them since they were actively engaged in some other ministries. I talked about some of our leadership, and they were fine with it. So I just gave it to the Lord. And I think we were about a year into the ministry, starting our church plant where we were. We had a Bible study on Sunday mornings going on. We had our library open. And uh, Malik came back. He had been in Mauritania for several years. And then he moved to a city uh, just north or south of us. And he was trying, helping a missionary there. And then he moved back to our city and uh, showed up about three and a half years ago and said, well, this is a church I grew up in, Hiroko, who's the Japanese missionary who's there. She was his teacher, a Sunday school teacher. He said, I was baptized in this, in this land, in this property, and I'd like to rejoin the church. He said, I'm not sure what God's doing in my life. I'm not sure why he's leading me back here. And I'm thinking, yeah, I know why. <laughs> okay, God has a plan here. But I waited about three months. I uh, wanted to just get a feel for his heart. And uh, after about three months, began discussing uh, different ministries. And little by little, we started plugging him into different leadership roles. And he has just done a tremendous job. He's proven himself a capable uh, Bible teacher and expositor, uh, capable and competent at counseling in various situations. He has a heart to see, especially the young people across Senegal, learn to maintain their identity as Senegalese, as Wolof, and yet be distinctively Christian. There's a, this, this concept, an idea, that in order to become a Christian, you have to give up who you are as a Wolof and become an American or become Western. And that's far from the truth. And so he really has a heart. Now, of course, the obstacle is Islam 
it's in, integrated in every part of your society and culture. I mean, it's every part of your life. You wake up in the morning and before your feet hit the ground, you make a prayer to Allah thanking Him for the breath you gave and, and you're praying five times a day. It's a part of the fabric of who you are. And so being a Christian and being Wolof, at the same time, there are certainly challenges, but Malik has a heart for that. So we do a, a bi-weekly broadcast uh, where we produce some films, and we'll share a little bit about that in a minute. And uh, it's called Sunu Yakar. He'll address different topics and uh, how, to, how to live the Christian life in the Senegalese context and a Wolof context. And so about two weeks before we came back on this furlough, now part of this furlough, we were supposed to come back, and he was supposed to get a visa. And uh, of course, I, I paid for the visa. Then they denied him. It didn't work out. You don't get reimbursed. So it was a little frustrating. But he was going to come. There's a ministry in Georgia called Christian Media International. And uh, they were going to give us free, um, uh, free studio time. And they would fi- film 50 half-hour segments of preaching, just pure preaching. And then they would pay for the first year of broadcasting that through satellite television in the country. And we did some research. And there, there are, nobody is on television uh, not even the charismatics. I mean, nobody's on television in Senegal on a consistent basis sharing the gospel. And we have the freedom and liberty. They have about six channels dedicated just to Islamic teaching. There's one channel, literally, it's just a, a webcam that is pointed at the Kaaba in, in Mecca, and they're just walking around in circles. One channel dedicated to just that. But nothing by means of preaching. Not even the, the wackos are out there preaching, you know. So we think, man, we want to get on there first, you know, get the Baptist in there and get the Bible, good Bible preaching on. And so he wasn't able to get his visa, didn't work out for this time, but what they do is help us establish a studio over there, and so we're going to be doing that. Of course, I, I always, I grew up, if you, if you know me, I grew up enjoying to make film, and I, you know, I didn't know if God would ever use that. Of course, some of you might remember crawling, you know, <laughs> we went on college trips, you know, just not destroying, but having fun in, in the hotel roops and, and uh, making movies. I remember at Grapp and Grandma Mead's. Uh, making movies out of the church van, People's Baptist Church is written on it, we're shooting guns out of the van, things like that. Anyways, the grandma's always yelling, you know, how on earth is God going to use that? But we, uh, about, about, I think it was last March, and I always had a desire to try to use media to, to reach the masses in Senegal. Everybody over there is on social media. Everybody, in fact, Google even came out and brought a team to do Google in Wolof. So there are a lot of people using online, and so... We did our first film. We wanted to do a live action film where we take the parables. Some of you might have seen it on Facebook. We take the parables of Jesus and we contextualize it. We ask ourselves if Jesus was to retell the story to the Wolof people, how would he retell it? Take the principal teaching and then just kind of act it out. And so we, we did the Good Samaritan. That was the first one. And we had this rich guy get insulted, this garbage man and all that. And then uh, he gets beat up and robbed and left for dead. And an imam walks by and he doesn't want to touch him. A marabou walks by, he doesn't want to touch him. And then that garbage man who he had insulted earlier comes by and he helps him out. And then just like that. So we, I mean, it turned out really well. And uh, the guys did a good job for the first film. This is all the Senegalese believers were in it. And, and uh, they did a good job for their first time. And I put it on Facebook. I thought, I'll do a $25 ad. And I did it for two weeks. 
And in two weeks, we had 75,000 people watch the film from start to end. Uh, 90 people shared it, and you can see who shares it. I went on, and most of these people are, are Muslim people. One guy, he had all Islamic stuff out of Mecca and all this, and right in the middle is our Good Samaritan film. And so uh, it's exciting to see that response, but we kind of took our foot off the gas because we began getting correspondence, and we need a structure in place to follow up with those who are seeking and uh, Facebook allowed me to look at the demographics, who, who's watching it. And that was interesting, too, because usually over here in the States, it's basically mostly most people using Facebook, to be honest with you, are women trying to build their MLM and whatever, you know, all that, you know. And anyways, over there, though, everybody's on it. And I'm not knocking all that. I'm just saying that's just the truth. Now, over there in Senegal, though, I looked at the demographics and 60 percent of those who watched it were men age 18 to 45. And so I thought, man, that's incredible. So just a wide open door to share the gospel. So we're going to go back. Our second film we'll produce is going to be The Prodigal Son. I'm really excited about that. And uh, other ministries have been using it at youth camps and different things to show it. There just aren't that many resources. And uh, I'm excited. I kind of geek out about those kind of things. I was able to raise about $6,000 this furlough to buy all fancy equipment and all that. So I got lighting and new cameras and all that. So I'm excited to get back and continue production. So continue to pray for that. And then, of course, we're launching um, right before we left. I thought, well, I usually like to have a specific reason, a specific task to fulfill, a message to share on our furloughs. And of course, this furlough is going to be our media production. We wanted to expand that. And of course, we, we ordained Malik two, two weeks before we came back as a pastor in the church. And I, I see maybe about five to eight years him taking over the church completely. We're probably about 10 years away from him being supported solely by the church and then by uh, a side job. We want to help him get a little farm started, and that's something he wants to do. And uh, we're still a few years down the road with that, but we do want to start a second location. And actually what we're going to do is where we currently meet, we're going to, most of the people that come to church, we average about 30 right now, they are all mostly living across the other side of town. And so we rented a house. We are renting a house for Hiroko, the Japanese missionary. And it's actually a large house. And the reason I got it, I didn't even see inside it. We were looking for a place for her that was in between where we lived and where Malik lived. So if we were back, he could be right down the road from her. And there was a house right down the road from where he lives. And uh, so I asked one of the guardians, I said, do you know how much this house is for rent? And he gave me the Senegalese price. He didn't give me the white guy price. He gave me the low price right off the bat. I said, okay, we'll take it. Where's the car? You know, where's the landlord? He took me over. The landlord said, uh, how much, uh, how much did he tell you? I told him what I said, that's how much he told me. He said, uh, okay, well, I guess we'll give it to you. And so it's a, but it's a five bedroom house. And uh, I thought, well, what's a single lady going to do with this big of a house? And uh, But one of the rooms is right off the, the road. And so we're going to block off that room and b- knock out a wall and uh, put a doorway there. And that's going to be our second library and Bible study room. And then her main living room, she's the one who suggested it. She said, why don't we hold a Bible study or we can even do church services here because most of the people who come to church are within walking distance of her house. And so we're going to move our church meeting place on Sunday mornings over to her house. And we're going to continue with our church planning efforts. So we're going to have a second church plant, but in the in the building where we're at currently. So we're not moving for the second church plant. We're moving the current church and continuing church planning in the neighborhood where we're at. We're really excited about that. Some of you know Lawrence here who came out. He, he, uh, he comes from a little bit of a different background. 
a lot of doctrine we've been working on with him. And uh, he said, honest pastor, I don't come from a Baptist background, but I love your guys' preaching. And uh, I said, well, you, you know, we have a very specific uh, statement you have to sign if you want to become a member. And it has certain uh, tendencies you have to be clear against. And uh, he said, well, I'm not ready yet. And so we continued. And one week before we came back, we were walking to the center. And he said, pastor, he said, I think I'm ready to become a Baptist. <laughs> I said, well, that's good. When I get back, we're going to, we'll hit it a little bit harder and we'll just, we'll make sure you're all ready for that. But I really believe he's going to be a good guy to help us uh, do some of the work in the second library. And uh, so God is at work. We're excited about what the Lord is doing. And then right before we came back, uh, Eric Bowman, our director, he called and he said, as it is, your colleagues who were in Senegal, they are going back to Ivory Coast. And until Daniel and Sarah get to Gambia, which they plan to get there next April, which they're just, they've done an incredible job raising support. They are going to do a tremendous job. They're just a wonderful couple and uh, they are raring to go. And so they're going to do a great job in Gambia. We're going to help them out. He's going to take a lot of the structure of what we've done and uh, use the existing structure. And then, of course, plug into the needs of Gambia the way he would see fit. And uh, they'll, of course, work on the language first. But uh, until Daniel and Sarah arrive, we are the last BIMI missionaries in North Africa. Of course, there's our missionaries spread across, but there are few and far between. And so Brother Bowman called. He said, we'd like to relaunch. Uh, a project that was started back in the 60s by Dan Truex, one of the former BIMI African directors. It was called the Sahara Project, and his goal was to get missionaries scattered throughout the Sahara to get Bible reading rooms, and it, which would become a church plan eventually. And uh, several missionaries surrendered through that project. Ron Bragg and J.B. Godfrey, Swante Linguist, and uh, other missionaries. And uh, some of them ended up in Senegal, the work we are continuing. And, and some ended up in Niger and Mali and other places and currently, there are still works there. There's a national pastor in Mali that needs help. There was a missionary in another country, uh, I'll leave unnamed, because of this situation where it's at. But he only goes back on short term. He's been there, he was there 40 years. He speaks eight languages. It'll take eight missionaries just to replace him. He had a phenomenal ministry there, a difficult place, a dangerous place. And I, I was corresponding with him on email, talking about it. Of course, Brother Bowman wanted wanted me to go visit Niger. It didn't work out this time. He wanted me to visit Mali and, and some of these other countries. It didn't work out this trip. But we, want, we have works in those areas. Uh, and I was corresponding with this missionary. He said, you know, usually when I'm recruiting or I'm talking to young men who are interested in North Africa, by the time I'm done talking with them, I basically talked them out of it <laughs> because it's, it's not an easy place. And we, you, he said, we really need Navy SEAL caliber guys going into these places. It's not easy all the time. And it, it's, you're isolated and it can be tough, but God is at work in the Islamic world. Uh, back in the spring, he said, I got a letter from about 20 men, and he has a radio broadcast. He translated uh, the Bible into a language that was a little bit more of an obscure language, but it's used by many of the nomadic tribes throughout the Sahara Desert. And he translated the Bible and another radio broadcast, and his radio broadcast is the most listened to radio broadcast in this northern part of the Sahara. And I'm, we're talking about reaching into Libya and northern Nigeria. This is Boko Haram and Al-Qaeda territory, and this radio broadcast is getting out there. He just had about 20 men write him and say that we've been listening to your broadcast for a couple of years. We've all become followers of Jesus, and he's been in correspondence, but he's, he can't be on the field 
long-term anymore, so we need boots on the ground. So we've, we're relaunching this. We're calling it the Sahara Initiative. And our, our primary goal is to see 12 missionaries, and this is what we're praying for. This is what I love about missions. Jesus said, pray the Lord of the harvest that will send forth labors into his harvest. If you want to pray a prayer that God is guaranteed to answer, here's it. Pray that God will send labors into the harvest. Uh, after our first term on the mission field, I was talking to Grandma Mead. And she said, you know, when I was younger, I had a desire to be a missionary. Of course, I married your grandpa and he became a pastor. But I began praying that God would send one of my children or grandchildren to the mission field. And I was the first one in the family that God called in a full-time service to the mission field specifically. And so you want a prayer, you want a prayer that God will guarantee to answer. Pray that it'll send forth labors. But specifically, we're asking that God will send 12 missionary families to the Sahara region. We need more partners in Senegal. We need more in Gambia. And uh, we need more across the Sahara. Now, I have a book we just published. I didn't have enough copies to bring tonight. But we're here a little bit more longer than what we thought we would be. I'm going to bring another Sunday night. We'll bring it up and set it back there. All of the proceeds go to the Sahara Initiative. But it gets into detail about some of this project, what we want to accomplish. Talks a little bit about how God led us to Senegal and what God is doing there. And so if that interests you or if you want to just support the project, uh, we'll have those books available later. Would you take your Bible and turn to 2 Kings chapter 5? There's so much since the last time we were here that we can share about what God has done in Senegal that I will try to get you out of here before midnight if possible. I just want to be like the Apostle Paul, okay? Uh, just, that, just trying to be Christ-like in Bible, and, but I will get you out of here sooner than that. In Senegal, we don't have time or clocks or watches that just goes out the door, but I, there's a big clock back there. We will try to get you guys out of here as soon as we can. Second Kings chapter 5. I love the stories of the Bible. The stories of the Bible are the greatest stories ever told. Marvel Comics ain't got nothing on the stories of the Bible, okay? Superman has got nothing on Samson. These, the stories of the Bible are not only the greatest stories ever told, they're the greatest stories ever told because they're true. They're real. And they're not only the greatest stories ever told because they're true. They're the greatest stories ever told because the Bible says of itself that the Word of God is quick and powerful. That word quick means alive. The Bible is alive. It is a living document, not in the liberal sense of, you'll hear politicians talk about the Constitution is a living document, meaning we can... We can interpret it and contextualize it according to uh, the needs and the understanding of the culture today. That's not what the Bible's talking about when it says it's a living book. The Bible is a living book because it is relevant to your need today. The Bible is a relevant book because it is a book of truth. It is the truth. And the stories of the Bible are not just the greatest stories ever told because they're true, but because these stories are relevant to your need and to my need. The stories of the Bible are not just stories about what God has done in the past, but they're stories about what God is doing in the present. And these stories are not only about what God has done through various characters, but there are stories. The story that we find in chapter 5, the first character we're introduced to, and oftentimes we can find characters that we can relate to. In chapter 5 of 2 Kings, we are introduced to a character. And I love the stories of the Bible because so much of missions is, is, is about a story. It's about what God is doing in the world. 
So much of what we do in world evangelism, what we are doing in Senegal, is just plugging into the story of God's redemption. God is actively involved in this world. And God is far more interested in seeing people saved than we are. God is active at this, in this world, bringing people to Himself. He's just looking for men and women and boys and girls that will be volunteers, that will be witnesses, that will be involved in what He is doing in the world. This is God's work. And in the narrative of God's redemptive story, we come to a man named Naaman. Naaman is a man... The Bible gives a description of this man. Naaman is a man who really is representative of the best the world has to offer. We find the first character, Naaman, a mighty man who has a great need but has no solution to that need. Look at verse 1. Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. Leprosy in Bible times was a horrible, terrible, no good, very bad disease. It still is today. Of course, we've learned today that it's a bacterial infection. It can be treated with antibodies and all this. But in the Bible times, it was not a good thing. To have leprosy was a devastating, there were devastating a sigma, stigma to it. It resulted in physical deformality, social isolation, it was not a good thing. Leprosy would start as a small bacteria, usually in the back of your spine, and begin to spread out, eventually attacking your pain receptors. Now here's Naaman, a mighty man. The Bible says he was a great man with his master. He was honorable by him the Lord had given deliverance. He was a mighty man in valor, but at the end of the day he was leper. And for a soldier with leprosy who's eventually losing the, the, the ability to feel pain, that's not a good thing. And this is a whole other message, but sometimes we ask, why is there so much pain and suffering in the world? There's actually a grace in pain. You want to be able to feel pain if you're a soldier. You get stabbed, you want to know, I need to flee, okay? If you're not able to feel that pain, you don't know to protect yourself. That's a whole other issue, though. Here's Naaman, a mighty man. With a great need. The Bible says of Naaman that he was a great man with his master, respected. He could command armies, conquer kingdoms, control nations. But at the end of the day, he was a leper. The Bible says of Naaman, he was honorable with his master. That means in, in the Hebrew, I was looking it up. It's interesting how it plays in the Eastern mindset. The, the word there means a, a lifted up face. In Senegal and in the East, when you show respect to somebody, you don't look them in the eye. So when I'm, you know, disciplining our children, I'll say, Tristan, don't, you know, over there, it's, don't look at me. Usually it's, look me in the eye when I'm talking to you. Over there, it's the opposite. You don't, to show respect, you don't look somebody in the eye. And, and of course, I'm taller than most people. So usually when I greet people, I kind of slouch over. Don't look them in the eye. You know, you think, who's this, you know, bum? Go over there, you know, leaning around. What's wrong with him? Now, over here, that would be unusual. Over there, to show respect, you bow down. You look down at the ground. You don't look in the eyes. This was a man who was on equal grounds with his master. Honorable, that word means a, a lifted up face. 
He was a man who was honorable. In fact, the Bible said by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was a man of integrity, a man of character. The Bible says he was a mighty man in valor, courageous. He, he commanded and deserved the respect of his soldiers. But at the end of the day, he was a leper and there was nothing he could do about it. I would imagine for somebody like Naaman who is used to being in control of the situation, for somebody like Naaman who is used to, to, to controlling the strategy of a military attack, who is used to commanding his soldiers, who's used to authority, I would imagine having no control over the sin of his own body, over the leprosy of his body, drove him nuts. And I would imagine with the social scrutiny, and especially in the position that he held, he would do everything he could to cover up what he really was. Leaders don't want to show any vulnerability, any weaknesses. Of course, we know the Bible compares leprosy to sin so often. It starts as something small and it spreads and it affects and it's destructive and there's no cure. There's no cure. Naaman represents the best that the world has to offer. He was a man of character, a man of integrity. He was a man who was courageous. He was a man that you look at and say, this is somebody that we want to be like in society. This is somebody we should have in leadership. This is somebody we can admire. But the Bible says at the end of the day, he was a leper. You see, the principle we find in scriptures and that we see in reality is that the lost or this world system and the people of this world who don't have Jesus Christ, they have great power corporately, but they are hurting individually. And we look at the great religious systems that the world has created and the great mosques and cathedrals and, and their ornate buildings that they've made. And we look at that, especially over in Senegal, and we think, man, look at all these buildings and it can be intimidating. And we're just this little group meeting in a little house. And what is this really, is, is, do we really have God's blessing? I tell our church all the time, look, the world has great power corporately. But when you, when you confront the individual, there is hurt. Because at the end of the day, no matter how much they try to cover it with their works, no matter how much they try to cover it with their system and with their churches and with their religion and with their prayers, at the end of the day, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And God has called us to confront the individuals with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's Naaman, a mighty man with a great need but no solution. But then God, in his sovereign plan, begins to move and work. Naaman doesn't know it yet, but he's about to engage in a spiritual journey towards salvation. And God is going to use a most unlikely character to bring that about. Look at verse 2. We are introduced to a little girl who is put into a bad situation, but who has a big God. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid. And she waited on Naaman's wife, and she said unto her mistress, Would God, my Lord, were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. Naaman finds out about that. The Bible says that you look down in verse, uh, verse 9. So Naaman came with his horses, his chariot, and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again unto thee, and thou shalt be clean. Jump down. Verse 40, then he went down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh came again like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. 
God has a plan for Naaman. Naaman doesn't know the end. Naaman doesn't know the end of the story. And this little girl doesn't know the end of the story. But here's this little girl in Israel, minding her own business, sitting with her family, maybe just sat down for supper, and the, the Syrians cross over the border, and as they were wont to do, begin to raid the villages and pillage and plunder and all this and that. And they burst into her house and who knows what they did to her family. They grab her, put her on the back of a horse, take her off into Syria to a land she doesn't know, a language she doesn't speak, a people she doesn't know. And to make the situation go from bad to worse, not only is she kidnapped from her home, put into slavery, but she is now a slave to the wife of the man who sanctioned the actual attack that put her in this situation in the first place. If anybody had precedent to be bitter and angry about her situation in life, it'd be this little girl. If anybody had precedent to say, God, why would you allow this in my life? Where are you? Why would you abandon me and allow this to happen? If anybody had precedent to be bitter about her no good, very bad, terrible, horrible situation, it would be this little girl. And yet that's not how we respond. I would imagine if, if it was me, I might respond a little bit differently. Naaman comes home. Of course, he's trying to cover the fact that he is a, a leper. He's trying to command his soldiers. And he's, you know, he's got his gloves on, his helmet on. He's acting all tough in front of his soldiers, you know, and this and that and commanding them and this and that. He gets home. And as most of us men are, we're real tough in front of other guys. We get home and we get a bellyache. It's the end of the world. And, you know, our wives have to, I can't do anything. You've got to make me this, help me this, do this. Okay, that's just the way we are. He gets home. He takes off his helmet glove. Oh, he starts complaining in the other room. Oh, it hurts so bad. It's so itchy. It burns. I don't know what to do anymore. I can't stand it. Now, if I was this little girl put into this situation, I'd be over there in the other room, you know, washing his clothes and doing the dishes, and I'd hear him over there suffering and belly aching about his leprosy, and I'd probably respond something like, well, good. I hope he suffers. I hope it itches real bad. I hope he's in the middle of a battle, and he's in the middle of a sword fight, and his nose itches real bad, and he can't reach it and itch it. I hope, in fact, I hope his nose falls off. I hope that it, I hope he suffers. It's his fault I'm here. That's probably how most of us might have responded to this terrible situation. But she decides that she wants to be used of God. She's just a little girl put into a bad situation. But she knows she has a big God who's in control of the situation. You see, especially in the, the political climate America is finding itself in today, it's important to note we as believers are not called to be policy makers so much as we are called to be peacemakers. And here's the point. Sometimes we can let our politics overrule what our mission is as Christians. And it sometimes hinders our witness and our testimony. We try to avoid at all costs conflict and controversy and this and that. I remember one of the first prayer meetings I had in Senegal. We had some leaders there. We were praying and one of the men started praying, Lord, I see apathy in our churches here in Senegal. Would you please allow more persecution so the church here would wake up? I kind of sat back and said, I don't know if I want a part of this prayer or not. You know, okay. Uh, but every, I mean... It, one day I was speaking with Malik's dad. He said, here's the thing, Josh. He said, if you are a former Muslim, you become a Christian, you will go through one form of persecution or another. 
I remember one young man, and I won't mention his name if this is broadcast online, but many of you have met him, the first young men we led to Christ. His uncle was the imam to the president of the country he was from. And his uncle found a notebook with Bible verses we had written in it. And he was beaten and hospitalized for 24 days just for that. I remember there was a group, when he finally escaped, they locked him in a room after he got out of the hospital. He finally was able to escape and got back to San Luis. We had a group from Pennsylvania that was there, and they were asking him questions. And uh, he was saying how he had, as a young man, somebody came to his village, showed the Jesus film, and uh, he had prayed that God would send him a, a, a Bible teacher to teach him the Bible. And uh, one of them asked him, now when, when your uncle confronted you, were you afraid? Did you, do you th- did you know what he was about to do? I mean, if you told him you were studying the Bible, and uh, were, you, were you afraid what, what might happen? And he thought about him and he said, yeah, I knew what was about to happen to me. But he smiled and said, I love Jesus too much. I, I couldn't deny what I was doing. Now, if he had told him he was a Christian, I do believe he probably would have killed him on the spot. But here he was put into a really bad situation. He didn't ask for that. He asked God to send him a Bible teacher. He didn't ask God to put him through half death beaten and all that. And by the way, one, one thing that's interesting is I asked him after that. I don't know if I shared this here or not, but I asked him after that meeting. I said, when was it that you started praying that God would send you a Bible teacher? He said, I think it was about 2002, which was the same year, if you know our story about pulling a country out of a hat. That was the same year that my friend and I just picked a country at random and said, God, we're going to go to Senegal as missionaries. If you want us there, you can put us there. This is God's work. But this young man, he didn't ask for that. He was put into a bad situation. But now that president is out and his uncle has no more power and Daniel and I were able to go to his village just in December. And he said, Pastor, I want you to share the gospel with my dad And my grandpa, we were able to share the gospel in his village. He said, my village is a little nicer to me than my uncle was. And as we stood there overlooking the the mosque, as family members and different people's village were going to the mosque, he turned to me and said, one day this will be a Christian village. I said, that's our prayer too. This is God's work, and God has a plan. And this little girl said, hey, I don't know why I'm here, and, and I know I have my rights, and I could call up, the UN and, and, and complain or call my government and get Israel over here to do something about it. But she decided, whatever my rights are, God has put me in this situation and there's somebody who has a need and nobody's there to help them, but I know somebody who can do something about it. There's a prophet in Israel and if you could just get to the prophet, he could help you. So Naaman says, all right, well, let's try it out. And he begins his spiritual journey towards salvation. Of course, we know the Bible says the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. It will, it will invoke a response. Negative, positive, it, the gospel, the preaching of the gospel will invoke a response one way or the other. I mean, we have an interesting relationship with the, uh, with the imam who's just two doors down the road from where we meet for church and where our, most of our ministries take place on Fridays. If you've been there, they just chant the Quran and preach and it's just, it's, it's nonstop. And we're crazy enough to actually move in that apartment here. We're hoping next year to move in the upstairs apartment soon, but we're going to try to soundproof as much as we can. But I'm sitting downstairs in our office and I hear him preaching and, uh, 
I, I keep hearing him say, two Bob, two Bob. And I'm like, two, that's white guy. You know, what's he preaching about? So I step outside the door and start listening. And he's preaching, don't listen to the two Bob and what he's preaching. Jesus isn't the son of God. And what he's preaching is blasphemy. He preached for about two hours against what we're doing. And then about a few weeks later, he came by and said, would you like to donate to our expansion on the mosque? I said, well, if you let me come and preach, maybe I will, you know. So it's an interesting relationship we have there. But this man is on a, a, a spiritual journey. And her simple testimony invokes a response. It causes quite a stir in the kingdom. We see our third character in the story, verse 5, an arrogant king who demands the impossible. Look at verse 5. And the king of Syria said, go to, go, and I will send uh, a letter unto the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand pieces of gold, and ten changes of raiment. This arrogant king decides, I'm going to dictate in a letter what this God of Israel is going to do for my general. This arrogant king who has been serving a false god, a false god, by the way, who has done nothing for Naaman's true condition and need. A false god who he has incessantly, daily given sacrifices and oblation to, bowing down to this idol of stone, an idol of stone who has done nothing for Naaman's true predicament and need. Now this king is going to dictate to God who he has given no allegiance to what he's going to do. And man, the world can be like that. Sometimes we can be like that. We like to dictate to God what we expect of him without meeting him at his terms. The Bible says we know that we are in him if we keep his commandments. And the Bible tells us that we are to behave in a certain way. The Bible tells us we're to love one another. But here's this arrogant king full of pride demands the impossible. You're going to heal my general. We're introduced to the next character, an unfaithful king who despairs at the request. Look down at verse 6, and he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, Now when this letter is come unto thee, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman my servant to thee, that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. And it came to pass, when the king of Israel had read the letter, that he rent his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive, that this man doth send unto me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore consider, I pray you, and see how he seeketh a quarrel against me. This unfaithful king responds to this impossible request by despairing. Heal my general. He rips his clothes. Am I God? Well, of course you're not. I can't do this. No, you can't. But his response to the impossible request manifested his proximity to God. He should know better. He should have known that this is an amazing opportunity right now to testify that our God is the God of the impossible. No, you can't do it, king. But you serve a God who can. But somehow he forgot all about that. Instead, he makes it political. <laughs> He's seeking a quarrel against me. Just trying to figure out a way to fight because he knows I can't do it. No, you can't do it. And I look at the task of missions in Senegal and think, what on earth can a white kid who grew up in rural Michigan go into a church in the middle of a cornfield? What can I offer to Senegal, Islamic, black Africa? What on earth can I offer? And we get there and you realize, you know what? You know what makes us effective in Senegal? 
after we're almost 10 years in Senegal, and this is what I've learned, what makes us the most effective in Senegal, the secret to being an effective missionary is this. Ready? Just being there. That's it. Just being there. And watching what God is doing. I think about a young lady. She, she had this desire. She, uh, some of you might have met uh, Gabriel, and I've told his story, how he was beat up by his family members, and they tried to reconvert him, different things like that. And several of you have been praying. This was several years back, and I got to sit in on his ordination, and he'll preach for us once in a while. He goes to the uh, other Baptist church in town, and uh, he was telling me the story. He said, yeah. He said, we, uh, and of course, there was this older lady who had prayed for his salvation about a month, she was from Brazil. She had came and been praying, and then he got saved a month later. Just an incredible story. Well, this, he said, this young lady, she just she showed up at our door, and she said, I, I, I had this desire just to seek Jesus. Of course, my family's Muslim, so I didn't want to talk with them about it. And so I had one Catholic friend, and she went to her Catholic friend and said, I, I, you're a Christian, you're a Christian, can you tell me about Jesus? And he said, well, I'll tell you what, if you go down the road across from the power company, there's a Brazilian missionary there, they're Baptist, knock on the door, they'll tell you about Jesus. Look, this is God's work. God could take a girl from a Muslim family, put a desire to follow Jesus, take her to a Catholic friend and get her to the Baptist to get her the gospel. This is God's work. You want to know why this Baptist missionary was effective? Because he was there. And she came and knocked on the door and got saved. And what's incredible, too, about that whole story is Gabriel was telling me, you know, I had that same lady who prayed that I would get saved. I said, would you, would you pray that God will give me a wife? It's hard to find a spouse here. There's so few Christians. And so she began praying. And a few months later, a young girl came knocking on the door saying, my Catholic friend sent me here and I'd like to get saved. And he led her to Christ and they're engaged now. I mean, this, you can't make up these stories. This is God's work, Okay. And this king is missing it. And a lot of times we're like this king. We miss out on what God is doing because we're trying to figure it out on our own. And I tell people kind of, uh, kind of jokingly but somewhat serious, half the time I have no idea what I'm doing over there. We're just doing it. Just plugging into what God is doing. Then we see finally a faith-filled prophet who declares God's power. When Elisha, verse 8, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, he sent to the king saying, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? What's wrong with you? We got a golden opportunity here to witness to this guy. And he said, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him come now to me. He shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. This faith-filled prophet declares God's power and his response is, is manifestation of his proximity to God. He knows, hey, I can't do it. You can't do it, but God can. Let him come. You know, look at all these immigrants coming into our country. Well, look, I understand, all right? Politics and all that and country and keeping everything all that. But here's the thing. Are you going to their country? Are we packing our bags and going to their God-forsaken countries, it might seem like? We're not going. Unless we're kidnapped, maybe we'll go, you know. So God's bringing them to us. And we can look at it one of two ways. Elisha said, hey, here's a golden opportunity. We're going to win them. Because God can do it. So Naaman shows up. And he shows up with all his entourage and Naaman is on a, a spiritual journey. 
And he doesn't know it yet, but he's going to see more than just his body healed. God has bigger plans for Naaman. But in order for Naaman to come to true salvation and his spiritual journey, it was a bumpy one. There was a lot he had to overcome. And it's important to keep in mind when we're witnessing, especially as, as we witness to those of other faiths, and specifically in Islam, you think, well, in false story, will I ever deal with Muslims? You know, in Columbiaville, look it up. There's an Islamic camp there. Now, it's not the extremists. They're a little more liberal, and they're, but they're there having moms come in. This is just down the road from us, all right? We're, we're engaging where we are. The uttermost is here. See, the uttermost is not so much, it's not a geographical location, all right? That wasn't the point Jesus was making. The point Jesus made in Acts 1.8 was not that you're, just, you're going to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost, and so we need to win our Jerusalem. We'll send people to reach our uttermost. That's great, and that's true. But the point Jesus was making was this is a decentralization of ministry. You start in Jerusalem because that's where you are, but it's going to spread, and you're going to go to the uttermost. Where's the uttermost? The uttermost is anywhere where there's anybody who's never heard the name of Jesus. And that could be your next-door neighbor who just moved in from Syria because they have no other place to live who's never heard the name of Jesus. We are called to actively engage the uttermost. But it's important to understand that these people are going through quite a spirit. There's a lot to overcome when they come to Jesus. Number one, Naaman, he shows up. And first of all, Naaman had to overcome the belief that God's favor can be bought or worked for. He shows up with his entourage, his gold and silver, and changes a raiment. So Naaman came with his horses, with his chariot, and he stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. He didn't even come. Elisha doesn't even go out and greet him, which was a big insult in this culture. He's a pretty big, important guy. I am a general, and he won't even come out and greet me. And he thought, I'm going I'm to show him all this gold I got. It's going to impress him, and he will be obligated to give me. I'm a good guy. I'm a man of character. I'm a man of, uh, of integrity. And because of who I am, I'm going to earn this. He had to overcome come the idea that God's favor can be bought or worked for. And that's not the way it works. The Bible says, by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. You ask any Muslim or any, any Catholic or anybody of any other faith, and they'll tell you the same thing. If I do enough good works, I, I think God will let me get into heaven. You want to know why that won't work? Because if you get to heaven and God has this giant scale and he puts all your good works on one side and all your bad works on the other, and let's say your good works outweigh your bad works, and God says, all right, got to let you in. You did a good job. You know what you get to do for all eternity? You get to go around all eternity saying, look what I did to get into heaven. Look what I did. God was obligated to let me into heaven. Did you see what I did down there? Let's replay that. I helped that little old lady across the street. That was a bonus point. Did you see what I did? And I don't know about you, but eternity for me is not listening to how great other people are. And I know Brother Cooper's a great guy, and I love him, but eternity to me is not listening to him brag on how great a guy he is, okay? And he's a great guy. But that's not what heaven's all about. The Bible says it's by grace that you're saved. That not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. See, Jesus paid it all. He paid all our sin debt. It's all done and it's all finished. So when I get to heaven, I get to say, hey, I don't have anything to offer. I don't have any good works because even my good works are filthy rags. But Jesus paid it all and his righteousness is my righteousness. And for all eternity, I get to go around heaven saying, look how good Jesus is. Look how good my God is. Look what he did for me, oh 
worm, a nobody, a nothing, and he let me in anyways because he loved me that much and he died for me. See, that's what it's about. And that's the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Naaman had to overcome the idea that God's favor could be bought or worked for. Secondly, Naaman had to overcome the idea that, that he, he had to perform some sort of religious ritual. He was looking for a religious ritual to perform, not a spiritual truth to believe and obey. Look what the Bible says. But Naaman, Elisha doesn't even come out and greet him. Naaman was wroth and went away and said, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over this place and recover the leprosy. I don't know what kind of TV he was watching. Maybe he got a little bit of Benny Hinn in Syria. But he said, man, I thought Elisha would come out. I thought he'd strike his hand over the place and he'd stomp his feet and hit me on the forehead and I'd have a seizure and fall over and I'd be healed, you know, bless God. He said, he won't even come out and greet me. No way this ain't happening. God is slowly breaking down his pride. You don't come to God with pride. God resists the proud. Religion of good works is a religion of pride. Those looking to, for a relig- ritual to perform, it's a religion of pride. You go to any Islamic country, they're carrying around their prayer beads. Flying over on the airplane, we have turbulence, and you can tell the Muslims, they pull out those prayer beads, and they're going away at it. Okay. Go to any Catholic majority country, and they got their prayer beads. You go to any Buddhist country, they got their prayer beads. Why? There is something tangible they want to hold on to that says, look, if I can just hold on to something and just do something. He was looking for a magic trip, some sort of ritual to perform. He needed to come to the understanding that it's just simple faith. Go and wash. He had to overcome his own preference and his own culture. Those in synagogue, there's a lot to overcome when they come to Christ. One is the idea that Christianity is a religion of the West. The idea that Jesus was a Caucasian guy that, you know, went around making Hollywood films. That's kind of the idea they have of Christianity. Because Islam is so integrated in the, in the culture that what comes out of the culture of the West, they just, well, it's a Christian culture. You know, America's a Christian nation. And I take... I don't, America is not a Christian nation. We're a nation founded on Christian principles. But there's no Christian nation. We are the church. We are a holy nation. We are, we are the ones, not our nation, we are the ones called to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He had to overcome his own preference. Look what he said in verse 11. I thought this is how things were going to go. This is what I thought God was like, and this is what I thought religion was supposed to be. Verse 12, Are not Abana and Farfar, rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Somebody touched us off spot here. But God's at work. He's breaking down his pride. And when you share the gospel with your co-worker and they get upset at you, don't give up. You're just touching a soft spot and God's breaking down and working on him. He had to overcome his own preference and his own culture. And lastly, he had to overcome the simplicity of the message. He had to overcome the simplicity of the message. We're looking for some complex structure that we need to perform and prayers and rituals. That's what the world's looking for. And it's amazing the lengths that the world will go to to appease a false god. 
The sacrifice that they're willing to, to, to give and what they're willing to do just to please a false god. They'll spend their life savings just to get to Mecca. Because if anybody's been to Mecca, it's almost guaranteed they'll get into heaven. They'll come back, and I've seen them do it. They get back from the airplane, get off the airplane, and their family gathers around, and they begin to recite the Quran. And as they breathe, the family tries to breathe in that air. Now, what they don't realize is that it's recycled air from the airplane. And so you don't know what kind of air you're breathing in now, okay? But they're just looking for something. Something complex that I can't describe. Look, the Bible is complex and we'll study it till you, the day you die and never delve into the depths of it. But the message is simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. He went away and angry. And somebody worked up the courage enough and said, look, look. Verse 13, a servant came near and said, my father, if the prophet had bid thee to do some great thing, would you have done it? Well, yeah, sure. I mean, if he wanted me to go climb a mountain and pick a flower and bring it down to him, if he wanted me to go, go travel across the sea and do this great, yeah, I would have done it. He said, he just told you to go wash. Why don't you just go wash and be clean? It's pretty simple. And he calmed down and he logically thought about it. He said, all right. In verse 14, then he went down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of this man of God. And his flesh came again like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. I'd imagine each time he's dipping down, steps down in the murky, dirty river, complaining and mumbling, but we'll try it. Each time he dips, he comes up. Nothing's happened. It's still the same. Still got the scabs all over. Do it again. The prophet said seven times. Why seven? I, that's just what he said. Just do it again. Two, three, four. Finally, the seventh time he comes out of the water. He comes out in slow motion. The water's glistening off his back as the sun hits him. He's shaking his hair off. He looks down. And the Bible says his flesh was like a little child. He starts feeling it. <laughs> Turns around. He's healed. But here's the miracle. Yeah, that, that was pretty cool. His leprosy's gone. That's, that's great. I mean, today you can take pills now and you can get healed, of, you know, whatever you got. You know, things like that. That's pretty cool he got healed. Here is the true miracle. He comes out of the water. He returns to the man of God. Verse 15, he returned to the man of God and he and all his company and came and stood before him and he said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Now therefore I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. Here is the true miracle. This man who verse 1 said he was a master comes out of that river a changed and transformed man and he came back and said, Elisha, I'm your servant now. I'm just a humble servant of God. God now. Now I know there's only one God in heaven and He's the God I'm going to worship now. He got saved. That's the true miracle. I know the key to this story and His journey and coming to salvation. We think, man, if we could just have more preachers, we just have more pastors, we just have more missionaries, we get the work done. You know, Elisha, he, he didn't even come out of his house. He's not even in this story. He didn't even come out of the house. Yes, we need more preachers. Yes, we need more missionaries. But you want to know the key and what brought this man to faith in Jesus Christ? It was a little girl 
who was minding her own business, and God took her out of her family situation, put her in a pretty bad situation, a slave to this guy, and she decided, you know what? No matter what situation, I'm called to be a witness of my God, and I'm going to tell this big soldier, this intimidating soldier, this soldier who knows more about life than me, who knows more about that, I'm going to tell him the simple message that if he can just get to God, God can help him. Yes, we need more preachers. Yes, we need more missionaries. But you know what we need more of? We need more little girls who are going to say, I'm just going to share about Jesus. We need more little boys who say, I'm going to share Jesus with my friends. We need more men and women who say, I'm going to be a witness in my workplace where God has planted me. I'm going to be a witness to my neighbor. That is how the work will advance in this world. Reaching the gospel. May God help us to be like this little girl. To just be a simple testimony of Jesus Christ.